it'd be great to leave that part of the Bible there open uh, so you can read it. Uh, there's no youth church today. You're in with us, which is just great. How about I pray and we'll get into the God's Word together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you for your Word. Thanks for its clarity. Thank you also for its, uh, it, well, for its light to our lives. Uh, may we follow it carefully every day. Amen. Uh, look, now, when my daughter Jasmine was, uh, was much younger, like, um, is it not going, is it, Paul? You want it a bit taller, closer to me? Sure. No worries. Well, there we go. When my daughter uh, Jasmine was much longer, like, a, like I'm talking 15 years ago, like when she was a toddler, uh, one day she was fidgeting and squirming and wriggling around, and I said to Jazzy, Jazzy, you got ants in your pants. Now, to a toddler whose brain hasn't yet worked out abstract thinking, uh, that is, she's a very concrete thinker at that age, what do you think she thought when I said, you got ants in your pants? And all of a sudden she's looking around, looking in, worried that she's got ants in her pants. And, uh, and I, thought, I, just, I just loved that moment in our, in our life together. And what I loved about that moment, though, was just how she treated my word. While she needed help to understand my words, but because she knew me and because she trusted me, she heard my word and she took me at my word. And I, I love that as a dad. I, I think it's a good example in some ways of how God's children, we as God's children, should always treat God's word to us. Yes, we need to understand carefully what it says, and at times we may need help to do that, like Jazzy did. But taking God at his word, he loves that. And I think that is one of the main points that Luke wants us to grasp in this opening chapter of, of his gospel today. Now Luke starts his gospel account here, the bit we're looking at today from verse 5 in chapter 1. So the very start of his gospel account, he introduces us to two people initially. That's Zechariah and Elizabeth. And they're both, we are told, from the tribe of Levi. That's telling us that this is a priestly family. Zechariah is a priest. And Luke goes out of his way as he introduces them to us to tell us that they are a very godly couple. Uh, look at there at verse 6. Um, have a look in your Bibles. They won't, they won't come on the screen. Um, just verse 6. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. See, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they are part of that faithful Jewish remnant. You know, when the rest of Israel was, was often walking around botching it up, these, these were part of the people waiting for God's salvation. And we find Zechariah as a priest serving in the temple. Uh, and it's a very kind of odd situation that we're not kind of not used to in our church and not used to, many churches aren't used to it. It was actually at a time and a place there in the temple where there were actually too many people on the ministry team. Imagine having that where you can't, you, too many people to fill your rosters up. And so to get on the roster, to, get actually, to actually serve it, to serve a church, you had to go into a kind of lotto system. And maybe your name would get drawn out. It was, it was, it was imagine, imagine being like that. That's what it was like back then. And you were lucky if you ever got a chance to serve. Well, one day Zechariah's priestly division came up. It was their division's chance to have a representative in the temple. And it was decided by Lot who would be that representative. And on this day, Zechariah was chosen by Lot to serve. 
it was a great moment for him. A very rare moment for him. A very privileged moment. And as he served, we get told, Luke tells us in the text here, that there's lots of prayer. In verse 10, there are people outside praying. In verse 13, we get told Zechariah himself is praying. No doubt Elizabeth being a godly woman, uh, she's praying. Now, what would they be praying about? Maybe for Zechariah, he's in there praying that he won't stuff it up because he's got very limited experience at doing it. Maybe, maybe he's praying like that. But actually, far more than that, as a priest and as a godly man, he would have been praying that God would come and save his people. Israel had been oppressed now for many years. And that as he and the gathered people pray, they would have been hoping, praying for hope, praying for freedom for Israel. That would have been on their minds. Now, you would have, underst- you would have understood uh, Zechariah if he was also praying that, that he and Elizabeth might have a baby. You could understand that he might be praying that because Elizabeth had been childless. And so, yes, while they were godly, they were infertile, but they were also now old. And so it wouldn't surprise us also if Zechariah and Elizabeth had given up on praying for children. At their age, they probably gave up on praying for children some time ago. And at this point in, in, in the talk this morning, I actually want to do a kind of a, a side point, not a main point of, of, of the sermon, but a side point. That, that I think is an important one, that, that we're reminded here that suffering doesn't have to be linked to sin. You can still be godly and in grief. That there is no particular sin or no particular mistake that Zechariah and Elizabeth have made that was causing their infertility. The text is very clear that they were blameless, that they were obedient. It doesn't mean that they were sinless, But they were a godly couple and they lived with the grief of infertility. You know, here at church, we often often celebrate the birth of a child. Uh, We pray for them publicly. We announce it in the outlines. People bring food to the people. Recently, it's been Hanny and Sandy with the birth of their son, Brian. And while we celebrate that, and I want to say, and rightly celebrate that, and I'd never want to apologize that we'd celebrate for that. But as we do that, you, shouldn't, you can't help but be aware of the silent grief that a number of people and couples in our church family have. The deep grief of trying to have children, but they don't come. And perhaps even more silent than that, but it's there as well is the deep grief of some single people among us who in their singleness are now beyond the age of motherhood and fatherhood. But for whom, for them, there is, this is a major grief of childless, childlessness in their life too. And this morning I want to say, if that's you, can I say that we, we feel for you And God weeps for you too. And we, we don't want you to deal with this grief alone. Don't go on this journey alone. It is, I think, genuinely one of the biggest griefs a human being can go through. 
It's the grief that uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah had, but in this case, uh, it was reversed. But Elizabeth's infertile womb was in a way a picture of the spiritual state of Israel at this point in time. Not completely dead, but almost. No prophet had been sent by God for over 400 years to Israel, but like God was going to open up this womb, God was about to break his silence. And as he does so, as, as the angel Gabriel comes to speak and announces this, this child, we ought to be thinking as soon as the angel comes and announces to, to Zechariah that his old wife Elizabeth is going to have a baby, our thoughts in the Old Testament, our thoughts ought to automatically just run to the Old Testament and go, gee, this, something like this has happened before. And as you think like that, who's the first one your mind might go to? It, it, it's likely to be Sarah. Remember Abraham and Sarah, um, she hadn't had any children as well. She was 65 years old. Abraham was 75 years old. That's how old they were when, when God came to visit Abraham to tell him that he was going to be the father of a great nation. And God was so keen on this that God made a, a definite promise to Abraham. But that promise just kind of kept on hitting a brick wall of infertility for another 25 years. Because it wasn't until Abraham was about 100 and Sarah was 90 that God, in demonstrating his sovereignty and his commitment to his word, breaks through. And the promised child Isaac is delivered and God's purposes for the universe are pushed forward. But as you think of, oh, this has happened before, this is, remember, Abraham and Sarah, your mind also goes, oh, there's another one. Remember Hannah. Uh, Hannah in the Old Testament, back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, where Hannah herself, she also is so overwhelmed by the grief of infertility that as she goes to the temple to pray, as she's praying, she's so fervent and, and distressed in her prayers that the priest who is actually listening in <laughs> thinks she's drunk but she's not drunk she's just pouring out her heart to God and God answers her cry and gives her a child and of course the child is the great prophet Samuel and yet again the promises of God for the, and for the whole universe are pushed forward and when you remember these women from the past and you go Elizabeth Zechariah's Elizabeth infertile like Sarah and like Sarah, awaiting the promises of God to be fulfilled. And then you've got Elizabeth, infertile like Hannah, but in the temple like Hannah. And when you notice, it's not just infertility in the temple, but Gabriel turns up. Not just any angel, but Gabriel turns up. You might not to go, now Gabriel's turned up before in the Bible as well. Where, where did he turn up? And if you, if you, yeah, you get a, you know, look it up or something, it's Daniel. Daniel chapters 8 and 9, Gabriel showed up to predict the future hope for Israel that was the hope for her because she was in exile. And I think when you notice these kinds of things, you ought to be going, gee, this is not just kind of a passing moment in God's plans for the universe. We, we, we must be at a big moment with a womb that cannot bear children and a promise of salvation from an angel named Gabriel in the temple with a couple waiting for the consolation of Israel, we ought to be going, man, all the coordinates are lining up here. This is X marks the spot. The time has arrived. Something big is, a, is going to happen. 
And so the, the news is announced. Look at, I'll pick it up at verse 13. Here's the news to Zechariah. But the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous and to make ready our people prepared for the Lord. I mean, what news? It's interesting in this news that his, his name would be John. He, uh, the name John literally means God's favor, uh, God's gift, and he will bring the joy of salvation. Well, the joy of salvation that he will point to. He'll bring joy to his parents because they've got a kid. He'll bring joy to the wider family, cousins to play with. He'll bring joy to a nation that hasn't experienced joy for a long time. He'll announce joy to the world. We're told here that no wine or fermented drink was ever to pass his lips. Again, reminding us, the old, again, it's Old Testament stuff, reminding us of the Nazarite vow, vow that, that, that the, uh, the book of Numbers in Numbers chapter 6 speaks of. Um, it's not a normal Nazarite vow, though. It's an extended one. The normal Nazarite vow back in Numbers chapter 6 was if a man was to dedicate himself for a period of time to the Lord, then he could make a vow and not cut his hair and not drink fermented drink. Uh, uh, alcohol and things like that and this kind of vow and these kind of actions separated him out from the rest of Israel but here John from the womb makes a lifelong vow not a period of time vow a lifelong vow a total dedication to the Lord his whole life will exist for one purpose that Jesus must become greater and he become lesser and John himself would be like other prophets. He would receive God's Holy Spirit and announce God's word. But uniquely to John, did you notice, is that he receives the Holy Spirit even within the womb is when he gets it. And even there within the womb of his, his mother Elizabeth, later in the chapter when, when Elizabeth meets Mary and Mary walks into the room. I mean, Elizabeth is kicked by John in the womb because John is starting his prophetic ministry very early. Telling his mum, hey mum, this is the great one, the one that this one's carrying. And his, John, his ministry begins so early. And we're told in this announcement by the angel that this John, it'll be John the Baptist, he will bring people who repent back to God and he will go ahead of the Lord to prepare the way. And later on we'll see in Luke that he comes into the power and the spirit of Elijah and he comes to fulfill the prophecies made in Malachi and, and on it goes and the whole point of it, all this Old Testament stuff stacking up is going, when Jesus turns up, he doesn't turn up in a vacuum. He doesn't turn up and say, well, you know, here I am, come and believe in me. No, he, he turns up and he fits in with a very clear plan of God, spoken about in the Old Testament, predicted by the prophets, announced by angels, in the pattern of old, announced in advance. And the whole point is, don't miss it. Something big is happening 
kind of Justin's, you know, little, um, you know, dawn is arising or the petrol lights on. I mean, this is, this is God's way of saying to us, don't miss it. Not only is Jesus' birth going to be introduced by John the Baptist, so important is Jesus' birth that God will introduce the person who will introduce Jesus. That's kind of what's happening here. It's, there's a lot of predictions going on. That's why our sermon series in Luke is, is called, you know, he's here. There's this sense of, wow, something big has happened. He's arriving. God himself has come to save his people. This is the best news ever. If you're willing to ready and ready for it, or it will be the biggest tragedy ever if you miss it. And so how does this godly priest, Zechariah, respond to this news? Well, if you've got your Bibles there, look at verse 18. As Gabriel announces this, Zechariah asked the angel, how can, be a, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man. And my wife's well along in years. How can I be sure of this? <laughs> Zechariah, wrong answer. Actually, I want to say, wrong motive behind the answer. The reason I say that is because it is interesting. Uh, later on, Gabriel will, um, will speak to Mary and announce to Mary that she's going to have a miraculous birth as well. And what's interesting is when you look at Zechariah's response to Gabriel and then you compare and contrast it to Mary's response to Gabriel, it's amazing actually how similar the responses are. Well, similar in word. Both times the humans, Mary and Zechariah, respond with, very, with a very similar question. Zechariah says, how can I be sure of this since I'm an old man? Mary will say in verse 34, how will this be since I'm a virgin? See how, see how they're very similar responses? But I want you to notice that you can ask those kinds of questions with very different motives. You can ask it believing the words that the angel has said and going, wow, wow, this is amazing. I mean, how's, how's God going to do this? That, that's, that's, that's. Or you can ask it not believing the words and go, huh, how's this going to be? Basically the same words, but said with very different motives. And I think it's clear from what unfolds that Zechariah asked his question from an unbelieving motive, questioning God's word to him, not taking God at his word and believing him. We, we might have expected a little bit better from Zechariah. And in one sense, in this moment, he is so typical of Israel, who wouldn't take God at his word. And he's so different from Mary. Mary, who we're not really sure exactly how old she is, 14, 15, 16, I don't know. She gets told she's going to have a child even though she's never had sex. And she asks not an unbelieving question, but an explanation question. Wow, how will this be since I'm a virgin? One takes God at his word and the other doesn't. And in the process, a 14, 15 16-year-old girl shames this 80-year-old priest and in the process reveals to us that God doesn't just judge our actions but he judges the motivations 
that then drive our actions. And can I highlight to you, you ought to take note of that and remember that because, gee, how often do we ourselves see ourselves or even the people around us pointing to their actions and declaring that their actions are okay but all the time hiding the motives that are driving them? God will see the action and the motivation driving the action and God will judge both. And so Zechariah here is judged, and the judgment is clear. Zechariah, if you're not prepared to trust the word of God, Zechariah, you ought not to be prepared to speak the word of God. And so verse 19, the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. I want to highlight that is a stiff rebuke. I'm Gabriel. I'm not just any angel. I spoke to Daniel. Hundreds of years earlier, I've been standing in the very presence of God. God sent me to speak to you. And he didn't send me with bad news. He sent me with good news. And even though I bring it, what do you do? You have the gall not to believe it. So Zechariah, let me tell you, whether you believe it or not, it's still going to happen. But you will not be able to speak for nine months. I find it fascinating that the first miracle recorded in Luke is a miracle of judgment. And Zechariah here is disciplined by God to ponder and learn afresh what trust is and how you ought to respond to God's word and how God is actually so trustworthy that he can always, always be taken at his word. And before we move ahead in this chapter to look at Mary and what is said to her, I want to pause here and at least for a minute try and learn the lesson that Zechariah was given nine months to learn. Friends, don't do what Zechariah did, that when you hear God's word and God's plan for the universe, when you hear about the importance of Jesus, don't go, oh yeah, okay, how, how's this going to be? <laughs> Don't do that because you've heard what happened to Zechariah when he heard the words from the angel Gabriel. And I'm here this morning to say to you, well, I'm an angel. Funny enough, I'm, I'm, I have no wings, but the word angel in the Bible just literally means Messenger. And so in the Bible, there are heavenly messengers. Yes, absolutely. I'm not one of those. But there are earthly messengers. I am one of those. Messengers that bring good news. And I'm here to say to you, don't miss it. Don't miss Jesus. He really is the important one. Don't hear the word of God today and leave today outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come and understand Once and for all that in Christ alone there is forgiveness. And in Christ alone you can have peace with God. And in Christ alone you can be set free from your fear of death. In Christ alone you can serve God without fear. He's here. Is what the angel is saying. Zechariah, he was here. I'm saying to you, Jesus has come. 
Don't put it to one side. It's so important. Make it the center of your life. Now, of course, the news of, the, of an amazing birth doesn't just come to Zechariah, it also comes to Mary. Now, the, the, the difference between Mary and Elizabeth is very stark, isn't it? Elizabeth's an old lady, uh, but and infertile, whereas Mary is young and fertile, but she's a virgin. And uh, the, the angel Gabriel explains to her that she will conceive a son as a virgin. Of course, we've seen that she says... How will this be? Wow, how will this be? And because she asks that with a believing motivation, she gets an explanation. An explanation that actually points us to the Trinity. If you've got your Bibles there, look at verse 35. It says there that the angel answered um, to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The Holy Spirit. That member of the Trinity that's often, well, I've often called it the self-effacing member of the Trinity, which just means the member of the Trinity who's always pointing away from himself, self-effacing, pointing you actually to Jesus. That, that Holy Spirit who is most glorified, really, when your attention is on Jesus because the Holy Spirit fashions Jesus in Mary's womb. The Holy Spirit then indwells John the Baptist to point you to Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit works in you so that you can say to mean it that Jesus is Lord because the Spirit is always pointing to Jesus. You want to honor the Spirit, you will honor the Savior. And what is clear as this unfolds is in this explanation that, that, that Gabriel brings is that no sex was involved. There'll be no sex between mum and dad, between Mary and Joseph. Well, not until he's born anyway. This will be a virgin birth. And just when you read that and people in our modern day society go, oh, look, how can that happen? But we've got to remember who wrote this gospel. It's Luke. Can you remember what Luke's day job was? He was a doctor. He was a doctor. He knew where babies came from, right? He's not into that kind of flying stalk that just comes along and that theory of it just drops babies into people's heads. He's not into that theory. He's a science guy. He understands the facts. But he also knows that 700 years before this event, the prophet Isaiah said these words, and these ones are on the screen, Maddie. These are the ones that can come up. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 says that therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And you will call him Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. Luke knows that as well, the prophecy. And this prophecy is telling you two things, pretty, pretty obvious things. One is that God will become a human. And secondly, that it will take place in the womb of a, of a virgin. And so Luke, who knows where babies come from, also knows, also knows, what, like what is said in verse 37, that no word from God will ever fail, including that word from Isaiah. And he knows that nothing is impossible with God, and so if the Son of God wants to become flesh, then he can become flesh. And if he wants to do that in the womb of a virgin, he can do that in the womb of a virgin because nothing is impossible with God. And Mary knows that, and so she takes God at his word and says, May your word to me be fulfilled. 
And so we have these two we have all we have these two women now. Two pregnant women with two miraculous births about to occur. And at this moment in our in our talk this morning, I, again I want to kind of get a bracket out and, and say a side point, which isn't the main point. But I think it's something I need to point out and say, even though it will be very difficult for people, some people to hear. Because I want to talk to you about life in the womb. The Bible doesn't often talk about life within the womb a great deal. There are a number of verses that do it. Here in Luke is one of those occasions. The whole passage here kind of clearly assumes, doesn't it, that babies in the womb are persons. I think it more than just assumes it. Uh, When Luke refers to John the Baptist in the womb here, and then later on when he'll refer, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, to Jesus outside the womb and he gets called a baby in the manger. The word used for the baby in the womb and a baby in the manger, the Greek word is the word brethos. And And Luke uses the same word for inside the womb as well as outside the womb. Because as far as the Bible is concerned, inside the womb or outside the womb, you're still a person. And also, did you notice that when John the Baptist is in the womb, he's given this Holy Spirit? You do realize, don't you, that the Holy the Spirit indwells persons. He doesn't indwell objects. The fetus is not just an object. The Spirit indwells John. He's a person. And you also notice, didn't you, that when um, at six months in the womb, as Mary comes into the into the, into Mary in Elizabeth's presence, we get told that John is rejoicing. O- objects don't rejoice. Human beings, people rejoice. You know, um, Steve Jobs. Many of you want to recognise the name Steve Jobs. He was the the father of the Apple company. You know, iPhones and iPads and all the rest of it. Uh, you might not know. You may not know. He, he was adopted. And uh, in, in one of the biographies written about him, he is quoted as saying, "I wanted to meet my birth mother. I wanted to meet her." He said, "Firstly, to see if she was okay." You don't adopt someone out unless there's difficult things. I wanted to see if she was okay. And then he says, and secondly, to thank her for I'm so glad that I didn't end up as an abortion. I find it alarming in many ways that our culture is so inconsistent with language. In the womb, we call it a baby if you want to keep it. But we call that same thing a fetus if you're prepared to kill it. And depending on the destiny we choose, we change the word. As if our word choices really define what 